Hello and welcome to the Climate Change Weekly Podcast. This is episode 8. This week, is it really the end of the Holocene? We're going to be talking about the UN Summit and an opinion piece by Al Gore in the New York Times and between 6 and 7 million people joined the climate strike on Friday. Before we get into the news, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has started following the podcast. It's only two months old and it's incredible to have listeners in 47 countries. It's really awesome to see there are so many people who want to stay informed about climate change. If you haven't yet hit the follow or subscribe button, please do so, and please encourage others to listen too. We start this week with a message to the United Nations Summit from a voice that will be familiar to most, if not all of you. It's worth reflecting that our civilizations arose in large part because of the last 12,000-year period of climatic stability, known as the Holocene, which allowed humans to settle and farm. However, we've taken that stability for granted. Our economies and political systems are unconsciously predicated on the belief that nature will continue to be a benign and regular provider of the conditions we need to thrive. Regular seasons, dependable fresh water, endless fish, pollinators, minerals, soil. It's now apparent that the Holocene has ended and our stable, reliable planet no longer exists. The impacts of this destabilization will profoundly impact every country on Earth. When you think about it, there is perhaps no more unsettling thought. The only conditions modern humans have ever known are changing and changing fast. What we do in the next few years will determine the next few thousand years. If you didn't recognise that voice, that was David Attenborough. What scientists are saying is that we have changed the world so much that we are now in a new geological age, the Anthropocene, the age of humans. Days after the enormous climate strike we covered in last week's podcast, leaders gathered for the United Nations General Assembly aiming to inject fresh momentum into efforts to curb carbon emissions. As many predicted, the summit did not deliver any new plans in line with the radical cuts in greenhouse gas emissions that are needed to avoid catastrophic climate breakdown. The summit heard about 60 speeches from national representatives. The Prime Minister of India told delegates that the time for talking is over in announcing a plan to ramp up renewable energy. But he didn't announce any phase-out of coal, a key goal set by the UN Secretary-General who convened the summit. Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, did set out the end of coal mining in her country, but only by 2038, which is extremely disappointing. Meanwhile, China declined to put forward any new measures to tackle the climate crisis. Emmanuel Macron, the French President, called for the European Union to deepen its emission cuts and said that France would not make trade deals with countries not signed up to the Paris Climate Agreement. Again, he seems to be leading in this space. But sadly, the summit was somewhat overshadowed by the absentees, most notably the US and Brazil. Greta Thunberg did address the summit, and apologies if you've already heard this, but I thought it was very important to include it. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet, you all come to us young people for hope. 
How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? Thank you. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe. You are failing us. But the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. We will not let you get away with this. Right here, right now, is where we draw the line. The world is waking up. And change is coming, whether you like it or not. So it's all gloom and doom from the failed UN summit. But there are glimmers of hope, and next I'm going to cover an opinion piece by Al Gore in the New York Times. I'm not going to cover the parts that are focused on the US political situation, but there is a nice summary of where we are making progress. He says the following, According to the research group Bloomberg New Energy Finance, as recently as 2014, a year before the Paris Climate Agreement was reached, electricity from solar and wind was cheaper than new coal and gas plants in probably 1% of the world. Today, only five years later, solar and wind provide the cheapest sources of new electricity in two-thirds of the world. Within five more years, the sources are expected to provide the cheapest new electricity in the entire world. And in 10 years, solar and wind electricity will be cheaper nearly everywhere than the electricity that existing fossil fuel plants will be able to provide. This transition is already unfolding in the largest economies. Consider the progress made by the world's top four emitters of greenhouse gases. Last year, solar and wind represented 88% of new electricity capacity in the 28 nations of the European Union, 65% in India, 53% in China and 49% in the United States. This year, several American utilities have announced plans to close existing natural gas and coal generation plants, some with decades of useful life remaining, to replace our output with cheaper electricity from wind and solar farms connected to ever-cheaper battery storage. As the chief executive of the Northern Indiana Public Service Company said recently, the surprise was how dramatically the renewables and storage proposals beat natural gas. He added, I couldn't have predicted this five years ago. 
Today, the fastest growing occupation in the United States is seller installer, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And it has exceeded average job growth sixfold in the last five years. The second fastest growing job, wind turbine service technician. Globally, close to 200 of the world's largest companies have announced commitments to use 100% renewable energy, and several have already reached that goal. A growing number of cities, states and provinces have pledged to do the same. The number of electric vehicles on the road has increased by 450% in the past four years, and several automobile manufacturers are shifting research and development spending away from internal combustion vehicles because the cost reduction curve for EVs is expected to soon drop the cost of the vehicle well below comparable gasoline and diesel models. Over half of all buses in the world will be electric within the next five years, a majority in China, according to some market experts. At least 16 nations have set targets to phase out internal combustion engine vehicles. More broadly, the evidence now indicates that we are in the early stages of a sustainability revolution that will achieve the magnitude of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution made possible by new digital tools. That was an extract from Al Gore's opinion piece, which leads us nicely on to our topic of the week, which is Wright's Law. Pioneered by Theodore Wright in 1936, Wright's Law provides a reliable framework for forecasting cost declines as a function of cumulative production. Specifically, it states that for every cumulative doubling of units produced, costs will fall by a constant percentage. What this means in practical terms is, as we build more and more solar panels, the cost of building those panels declines by a predictable percentage. At the moment, solar represents 2% of the world's generation capacity, so as production doubles to 4%, we can expect a constant cost decline, which in the case of solar has been observed to be at about 30%. Double again to 8% of world generation capacity, and we get another 30% decline, and so on, and so on. With wind power, the cost decline from a doubling of capacity has been observed at around 19%. However, as wind already represents around 10% of global production, the number of doublings it can now do is less than solar, and given its lower cost decline rate as well, solar is going to become far, far cheaper than wind over the medium term. Now, of course, Wright's Law is applying to not only solar and wind, but to battery storage, to electric vehicle production, and to many other new technologies. This means that over the next five to ten years, we may well see not only the cost of solar becoming cheaper than running existing fossil fuel power stations, but we'll very likely see that the cost of solar combined with local battery storage will be cheaper than the transmission cost of electricity on the grid. What that means is that it will be cheaper to have solar panels on your roof and battery storage in your house or factory or office than it would be just to pay the transmission costs of electricity from the grid. So even if the cost of generation was zero, the transmission cost alone would be more expensive than generating your own electricity and storing it yourself. Another area where the implications of rights law are going to be significant is transportation. We've already discussed the production of electric cars and the battery storage within those cars is going to get cheaper at a consistent rate as the number of cars produced doubles. What we're also going to see is the advent of autonomous cars, as we discussed in episode 5. The leaders in this field are Waymo, which is a Google company, General Motors Cruise, Argo AI, and Tesla. 
Inevitably, one of those companies will crack fully autonomous driving within the next few years. In fact, Waymo can already drive autonomously in Phoenix, Arizona, and they are looking to expand the service city by city across the US. So, when fully autonomous vehicles do become widespread, say in the next three to five years, that advance, together with the falling cost of producing electric vehicles, will lead to robo-taxes costing about 10% of the cost of an Uber today. Whenever there is a 10x improvement, it always leads to a disruption, and this will disrupt the entire transport industry. Public transport will no longer be competitive, and it will get to the point that if you live in a city, a subscription to a robo-taxi service will be significantly cheaper than owning your own car. It's going to be a very interesting future, but I think the key thing from the perspective of this podcast is that what we're going to see is is these accelerating technological changes will have the beneficial side effect of transforming our transportation and electricity generation from fossil fuel-based to solar and wind-based, which is going to be a fantastic thing. And thank God it's happening because what we've seen is policymakers seem to be completely incapable of forcing these kind of changes. So luckily, the market forces will, in fact, bring these changes about very rapidly over the next decade. Now, it would be remiss of me to close out the podcast without mentioning the climate strikes. Last Friday saw another huge climate strike, the largest so far, with an estimated 6 to 7 million people taking part, an absolutely huge turnout. In New Zealand, it's estimated around 3.5% of the population attended. And in Canada, 1 million people took part. In Moscow, where it's almost impossible to get permission for a mass demonstration, they protest in a queue. One person holds a poster for five minutes, then hands over to the next person who is waiting nearby. That way they don't have problems with the authorities because it's a series of solo strikes rather than a group gathering. Unfortunately, despite all the fine words, politicians are still not really doing anything to affect real change. Greta had a private meeting with Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, who himself had taken part in the climate strike, but afterwards told a news conference with local Indigenous leaders that he was not doing enough to curb greenhouse gases responsible for global warming. Indeed, it was his government that in June approved a new oil pipeline between the oil sands in Alberta and the coast. Their words say that they care about climate change, but instead of banning extraction of oil from the sands, which is an environmental catastrophe, they are supporting and encouraging it. This two-faced behaviour seems to be a global phenomenon. In the UK, while declaring a climate emergency, they still refuse to ban fracking. That's all we've got time for this week. Please do star or rate the podcast, subscribe, follow and share with others. Have a great week and we'll be back again next Monday with another episode of Climate Change Weekly. I know the change in me goes deeper day by day Although you're by my side I feel you slip away I've been so restless Can't seem to concentrate Till you come back to me That will be my fate I need love